All right, how much history do I need to do? Did I tell you guys the book of Revelation is not a hard book to understand? Matter of fact, it's the only book in the Bible that comes with its own divine outline. Try that one more time. The book of Revelation is not a hard book to understand. Matter of fact, it's the only book in the Bible that comes with its own divine outline, which is found in Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. And it says the the three areas Jesus told John to write the things which were is the past, to write the things that are, which is the present. Revelation 2 and 3, that's where we are now. We're in the present. You and I are in what's called the church age. And then to write the things which metatauta are going to come after this which is Revelation 6 through 22, which is the entire future of what's coming, Revelation 6 to 22, with an emphasis on the seven-year tribulation that is defined for us in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. Very good, very good. Revelation 6 through 19 is a seven-year period of human history that the world calls or that we know commonly as the tribulation or the great tribulation. The end of Revelation of the Great Tribulation culminates in this one event that's, again, kind of very popularized in the world. It's called the Battle of Armageddon. And at the Battle of Armageddon, the armies of Antichrist and the armies of the world that remain at that time that haven't died in the plagues of the seven years will gather. And the Bible tells us exactly where they'll gather. I've been there seven times and and, and stood in the place where it will take place. It's called the Megiddo Valley in Israel. And in this place, the armies of Antichrist will descend upon this valley that's there. Napoleon Dynamite was there. Not, not Dynamite. The other Napoleon. Napoleon was there, and he said that this is the battlefield of the world. And in that place, the armies of Antichrist will gather, and Jesus will come in the Battle of Armageddon. The Bible says on a white horse with a tattoo on his thigh. We'll talk about that later. Just kidding. And, and a sword will come out of his mouth and he will destroy the armies of Antichrist in the battle of Armageddon. That the church will ride with him on white horses behind him. So at the battle of Armageddon, we will be there one way or the other. If you're there, you want to make sure that you're looking at Jesus' back and not his face. Because if you're seeing his face, the sword's about to come your way. You don't want that. It says that the blood from the battle of Armageddon will rise to the horse's bridle. That Jesus, that God will summon the birds of the world that will gather there to eat the flesh of the dead at the battle of Armageddon. That's the end of the seven year tribulation. At that point, we go into Revelation chapter 20. And in chapter 20, it talks about a thousand year reign of Christ on this, on this earth, on a reset earth, but this earth that's called the millennium or the thousand year reign of Christ. At the end of a thousand years, Satan will be let loose one more time to just check and see if there's anybody else that wants to follow him and not God. And then at that point, at the end of Revelation um, 20, um, Satan will be cast into the eternal lake of fire. The, the lake of fire or the hell that exists today is temporary. And in Revelation 20, Jesus has said, I'm going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And at that time, Satan will go into an eternal fire where he will never be let out again. And then in, in Revelation 21 and 22, we have a new heaven and a new earth. And we all live happily ever after. All right. That's the book of Revelation. You guys are Revelation scholars now. So we're in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. There is a specific timeline in Revelation that's super important. If you just stick to Revelation chapter 1 verse 18, the timeline, you know that Revelation 6 through 19 is describing a seven-year period of human history. When you read things about beasts and giants and plagues and um, locusts and demons and, and all of these things, you don't have to fret and, and because you know if you keep it in those in those parentheses that that's all happening during a seven year period, then you can, then you will continue to understand the book of Revelation without even having to understand every little nuance of the difficult things that you read as you go through the book of Revelation. Revelation two and three is where we are today. Um, Brian, could you put up the church age seven uh, the seven churches on the screen, please? Um, all right. So we left off last week in verse number ten. We finished half of the faithful church. Now, Jesus writes here seven letters to seven churches, and each one has some condemnation and some commendation, things that they did well, things that they did bad. I love this this part of our Bible because it's Jesus writing a letter to seven literal churches that were in Turkey, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and he gives them each a report card. These things you do well. These things you you don't do so well. Improve on these things. And, And to me, as a Christ follower... I would love for God just to spell it out that simple for me. And I'm sure he does. And if he doesn't, it's not because he's not talking. It's because I'm not listening. 
But, but for God just to show up with a written report card that says, hey, as a Christ follower, these are the things you do well. And these are the things that you, you need to work on. These are the things that I want to see improvement in your life as you move forward. You know, amen. Like, I don't know about you men, but I praise God for my wife in this one area especially. You know, my wife is not this woman who's like, somewhere over the rainbow, there's this pot of gold and this great love. And she doesn't do this to me. She doesn't say, well, if, if you knew, you'd just do it. Or, you know, like, I don't have to tell you. I'm not going to tell you what to do. If you love me, you just do it. You just know. Oh, goodness. Ladies, can I, can I be honest with you? Don't do that. If you're that lady, look, we're, we're Neanderthals at best, okay? So we're just, we got one gear, we got one speed, we got one mind, um, and, and we just don't process very, very, so help us out, help us out. If there's something going on, don't say, oh, if you love me, you'd know, or you'd figure it out. Just tell me. If you tell me what the problem is, I can work on fixing it. But my wife's so good at this. She really is. She always has been. Like, she doesn't play those games. She just tells me, like, hey, this is what you're doing. It's bothering me. This is what I need from you. I love it when she says it. It's not easy because she's not telling me something I want to hear. But, but at least now I have the tools that I need to be successful in my marriage. Because she'll just tell me, hey, I, I need this from you. You're not doing this very well. You're laying down. You're falling down in this area. You know, I wish it was as simple as can you pick your underwear up off the floor? And, and, and guys, too, I'll give you some advice, too. Like, if you're not married yet, I tried to lay down some rules in the beginning. I'm like, I had this friend, and he was a hunter. He was a great white hunter, man. This guy was a legit deer hunter. Like, the guy that would just go out with a backpack and three day, and out in the woods by himself, and three days later, he'd come back with a big deer rack on his backpack after hiking for 27 miles and all this stuff. And he said, I told my wife before we even started dating, listen, I'm a hunter. I don't care how long we get married, I'm going to hunt. And when hunting season comes, I'm not going to be there. I set the tool. I said, okay, that's good advice. Lydia, check it out. This is the deal. I do not put another bag in the trash can. I'll take it out, but I'm not putting that bag back in. I don't do that. And I don't do laundry. I'll do dishes. I'll vacuum. I'll sweep. I'll do windows, but I don't do laundry. And then she made me do laundry one time, so I just poured a bunch of bleach on it and put all this stuff together and threw it in there. And she's ah, you never do laundry again. I said, okay, sorry. That one works, but... What am I even talking about? <laughs> Got a little carried away, sorry. Um, I'm talking about that, that, that Jesus here in these chapters, he just gives us, he defines for us the things that he needs for us, the things that are well, the things that are bad. So I love it. Go through it in your personal life. Go through it in your personal walk and check yourself. You know the cool thing about this? This is written to seven literal churches in Asia Minor of the time. These are all buildings that had people and pastors and leaders and, and Jesus uh, uh, gives them a physical letter that John would have written down with parchment and ink and, and addressed to them, and it was for them specifically. But at the end of every letter, it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And I ask you guys every Sunday, how many of you guys have an ear? Some of you raise your hand, and I ask you, how many of you have two? Um, so it's also applied to our lives daily, so we can take these things and apply them to our lives. Now, the Church of Philadelphia is the best of the seven in a way. I mean, the, the martyr church, he didn't have anything bad to say about them, but definitely the Church of Philadelphia, the Church of Brotherly Love, where we are today, is, um, how about the other one, Brian, the um, line, what is the line with the seven churches in the timeline? Uh, one more. Is that it? Okay. All right, so... There it is. So we have this again. These also represent literal ages of church history. Every one of these um, types of churches could still exist or parts. But we have Ephesus would have been the church the apostles started. Um, was a persecuted church. We get to Smyrna. We come to Pergamos. Pergamos means objectionable marriage. That's where they married the church in the world and try to just make everybody get along in Rome. Um, by the end of that, by Thyatira, we have the Holy Roman Catholic Church who begins to take power on planet Earth um, when they made the edict that everybody had to be Christian at this point or they would kill you, um, really had nothing to do with Christ, the Crusaders, the uh, Jesuits. It really had nothing to do with Christ. It wasn't the way that Jesus laid out evangelism, but, you know, I don't know. I guess it would have been effective, but, you know, should we try it? I know you guys got a lot of guns. Maybe that would work. 
We'll go out on the streets of Tooele and we'll be like, come to church or else. Um, but anyways, that's what they did. And that's how Thyatira became a powerhouse in the Holy Roman Catholic Church and all of the things that went through that. And they reigned and ruled on planet Earth for about a thousand years. Um, in Sardis marks the Protestant Reformation and um, um, John Calvin and others um, kind of came out of the Catholic Church because they began to read the Bible and they began to see that the practices that were taking place in the current uh, Holy Roman Catholic Church were not in the Bible. And so because they had access to the Bible, they began to protest some of the things that were taking place, um, hence the, the birth of the Protestant Reformation. We would consider ourselves um, Protestant here, I guess. Um, I, I don't really kind of title us that or myself, but I guess that's where we would fit. I, I kind of call it Orthodox Christian, and, and that's a term sometimes people get skewed to. But Orthodox just means that we we believe that we practice the same Christianity that the apostles and the early disciples practiced. That that's it's from the Word of God. It's the Bible only. It's Jesus only. Um, and then um, by the time we get to 1750, we have this spirit-filled church. And what happened in the world around 1750? revivals and world missions and missionaries who went all over the world bringing the gospel and amazing stories of, of the gospel going all over the world and churches growing up and the Spurgeons and the, um, those, those men of the, 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 the word of God who began to grow churches and began to preach Jesus. And, and so we have this great church of Philadelphia that we're studying today that, that we want to emulate, that we want to be a part of, that we want to be like them. And one of the things is they were the church, we call them the church of the open door. And Jesus said, I'll open a door for you and no man will close it. And that meant that they were missions minded and they went through open doors and they, they were on mission. Not just mean, the mission, being on mission doesn't just mean that we travel to foreign countries, which we do and share the gospel. But it means that in our personal lives as Christ followers, we're on mission to share Jesus with our family, with our friends. That we understand that people are going to die and go to hell without Jesus. And that burdens us and we want to love them and share with them. And as these times get closer and closer to the end, that, that it's even more necessary to be people who are on mission as we share our faith. The Church of Philadelphia was that. And, and being, have, being a church of an open door means that we're being led by the Holy Spirit. Are you being led by the Holy Spirit? Does God lead your life? Does the Holy Spirit speak to you and give you direction? What if you have a decision that you have to make in your life? What is the process that you go through to make decisions? And, and I'm not talking about whether you get Coke or Pepsi when you get to the counter. But I'm talking about, you know, when you have real decisions that you have to make in your life, relationships and jobs. And, and, and it can come down to whether I get a Coke or a Pepsi, actually, because Jesus is involved in every area of my life. But one of the processes that we use in life to make decisions is a thing we call pros and cons. So we, you know, we want to move. We want to do this. We want to live to do that, this and that, this job. We weigh pros and cons, where we make more money, where, where are we more successful, you know. Um, but I want to tell you, one of, one of the things, I, I tell you guys, I got two, like, really, like, good advice for you. Other than that, I'll run out. So if you're around here, I could tell you these two things, and then you can find a better church and get some better stuff. But I got two things. Number one is read your Bible and pray every day. Okay, read your Bible and pray every day. That's my best advice I could ever give you, you know. I had to reach as deep as I got. That's it right there. Re read your Bible and pray every day because that, that discipline will absolutely radically change your life in Christ. You don't need me. You don't need anybody else. You don't need to, you know, you know, we have each other because God told us to have each other and it's here for a healthy function, but we don't need that for access to God. What you need is to read your Bible and pray every day. Okay, that's number one. Number two is something that advice that Lydia and I got early in our marriage, and, and, I, and I really believe that we have a good testimony in this part of our lives as Christ followers. It's something that we've done well, you know, and, and I don't claim to do everything well. There's lots of mistakes that we made and make, but, but this one area, God, God was good, and we've done well in this area. In decisions that we make in life, we, we get out our scale just like everybody else, but instead of putting pros and cons on, I've never one time in a decision put a pro and a con on a scale. I have one item that I place on the scale, and whatever way it tips is the decision that I make. Someone, I think, said it. What was it? God's will. That's it. What is God? What is your will? Oh, move to Twila. No, Lord, it's like cold there. I'm from Southern California, and I really, really like the beach. I don't like to take my shirt off at the beach anymore, but I still like the beach. And, 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 you know, no, or this or that, you know, 
It had had nothing to do with that. Leaving and coming here, honestly, we labored for months, six months of praying and seeking God and reading the Word and talking to other people, and but only trying to figure out one thing. What is God's will? What is God's will for your life? What is God's will for your next step? That's where you need to labor. And get everything else off your scales, and none of that stuff's going to compute anyways. You know, instead of moving to Cold Tooele, we could have come to, Lydia and I could have decided in that season of our lives to, to move to Kauai, Hawaii. And, and, and had a house on the beach. And, but you know where I would be today? Miserable. Because I'm outside of the will of God. Way more happier in Tula than I would be sitting on a beach in, in Hawaii or Tahiti or anywhere else. Because, because of the will of God. And so to have the will of God. And again, the, and, and I don't want to get it twisted because I am teaching through this chapter in this, this church, okay? This church is led by the Holy Spirit. And that's what I'm saying. That's the mark of the church of Philadelphia and the open door is that their lives are led by the Holy Spirit. Somebody say amen for I go home. Just kidding. I won't go home. Yes. Yes. Okay, good. Love you guys. You know, Pastor Chuck said that you, you never beat the sheep. That was a rule of preaching, you know, and every time I hit you guys, I'm like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> Chuck's not going to like that, you know, but. Chuck's in heaven with Jesus now, so he'll get over it. But um, All right, so let's look at verse number 10. Actually, let's, let's pick up the end of verse 9. It says, the last verse of 9, he says, and, I know that I, and, and to know that I have loved you. So those who say they're religious and yet they're not, I'm going to make them sit at your feet and they will know that I have loved you. Now, one of the things I pointed out early in the book of Revelation is that when you see Jesus' mention of his love, it's in the past tense, and that doesn't take it away. But the love of Jesus, that Jesus has loved you. And Jesus does love you currently, but, but the way he listed here is in the past tense, I have loved you. And Jesus' love for you is demonstrated on the cross. You know, we've talked about this before, that God says in the Word, in the Psalms, that, that the firmament shows your handiwork, and, and that, that to see creation, we know there's a Creator. In your innermost being, God has created in you the, the innate ability to look at a, a skyline. I spent some, some time in Alaska. I lived in Alaska for about six months. And um, one of the most beautiful scenes I've, I've seen, I'm standing at the base of this beautiful tall mountains. And you can see the ocean on this side. The mountains are snow covered. They're green, as you can imagine, covered in trees and everything else. And the tops of them are covered in snow. And you can see the ocean on this side. And there's waterfalls coming down these mountains. Absolutely majestic. There's no way, God's Word says, when you look at that, you understand innately that God created that. And God has given you that. Then you have to lie to yourself continually to believe in anything else. That's the way it works. You continually believe a lie, continually to tell yourself that lie. That's what the Bible says very clearly in Romans chapter 1. Um, and so we, we know that. But the one thing that mountain does not tell me is what? It does not tell me that Jesus loves me tells me there's a God, but it doesn't tell me if that God cares about me. It doesn't tell me if that God is interested in my day-to-day life. In order to see the love of God, the picture that God gives us is Jesus dying on the cross. That's the picture of God's love, is that God demonstrated his own love for you when he sent his only begotten son to die on a cross. And so we have that love. And in verse, chapter, verse number 10, it says, because You have kept my command to preserve. I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world. Look at your neighbor and say the whole world. To test those who dwell on the earth. Now, um, I'm, I'm as you guys know, my personal theology about eschatology is there's a a rapture that the Bible is, is clear that is going to happen. And, and many Bible scholars don't necessarily argue about the fact of, that the Bible teaches there's going to be a rapture. They, they more argue about, and there may be some fringe people who believe other things, but for the most part, the large body of biblical scholars would agree that the Bible teaches there is a rapture. But, but they would disagree on the timing of that rapture. Some would say, and there's, there's, I think there's 12 different theories um, there's a book by one of the Calvary pastors, and I'm drawing a blank on his name right now, um, that goes through all 12 different scenarios and reasons and pros and cons for each, and, and then he lands on a particular one that um, 
is the best one that fits the Bible in every scenario and has um, the most credibility, Genesis to Revelation, and that is a pre-tribulation rapture. And that means that before the seven-year period of God's wrath on planet Earth, the church, the bride of Christ, as a Jewish wedding is, an, is a picture of what God is going to do prophetically, is that the bride of Christ, we're born-again believers in Jesus, will be raptured, a raptus, caught up to meet the Lord in the air, First Thessalonians 4, and um, for seven years we will be at a marriage feast in heaven, tucked away while God is pouring out His wrath on a Christ-rejecting world for seven years and also rededicating and repurposing His call to the nation and the people of Israel, His people, to bring them back to Himself, to open their eyes and remove the blinders that are currently on their eyes. And so, so this, um, you know, as I teach through and as I go through the pre-tribulation rapture, um, I have so many different verses and places. And as I've come to Revelation chapter 3 in this study, I, I, I guess I knew this was there, but I never really come to it. I don't, it's not like a go-to verse for me for the rapture, but it's my new one. From now on, this is where I'm going to come right here, because I think this is the best, the most clear um, pre-tribulation rapture we have scripture or rapture scripture we have in all of the new testament and, and so um, let's look at it again it says because you have kept my commandment to preserve i also will keep you from the hour now that's not an hour as in 60 minutes that's that's a coming time period that's going to come and, and we know that the seven-year tribulation period of god's wrath is going to be poured out hold hold uh turn there turn with me to revelation 6 just turn one page and I want you to look at Revelation chapter 6, verse number 17. Now, Revelation 6, as I've told you guys now for seven weeks, Revelation 6 begins the seven-year tribulation period. The first event of the seven years where God begins to pour out His wrath is called the Where the Full Horsemen Ride. That was like an old Iron Maiden song from my childhood. That Every time I read that, I think of this song in my head. I'm sorry. I know that's probably sinful, right? But... I have this memory. I can't get rid of it. But the four horsemen of the apocalypse, that seems to be, again, kind of popular, and we, we know that term, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Well, the four horsemen of the apocalypse ride in Revelation chapter 6. That begins the seven-year period. The mark, the timing of the, the beginning of the seven years is some a different event, but the first thing, which is the Antichrist signing a peace treaty, Daniel chapter 9 and 11, but the first thing that happens is these God releases from heaven, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And, and, and then by the time that culminates, look at verse 17. It says, for the great day of... Let's try that again. For the great day of His wrath has come to stand and who is able. So there is an hour coming. There is a time coming where God's great wrath is going to be poured out upon this world. And by the time the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the very first thing that's going to happen, the Bible says one-third of the population of planet Earth is going to be dead. The waters are going to turn to blood. There's going to be plague, and then one-third. And it is absolutely the wrath of God. There's those that say the rapture is going to happen not at the beginning, but, it, but because they understand the Bible is clear about one thing. I'm going to take you there in a minute. If you start to turn there. First chapter 4. The Bible is very clear that we will not face the wrath of God. Do you remember Abraham and um, Sodom and Gomorrah? And God rains down fire upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham has that discussion like this, again, probably not really cool to say, but people say it. I don't use this term, but they say Jew them down. Now, I think it's, it is definitely a little derogatory to use it that way, but that's a term that people use. Well, it comes from this story of of, of Abraham having this conversation with God in the Old Testament, God tells Abraham, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm going to kill everybody in it. And then Abraham intercedes, begins to pray for Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, God, and Lot lives there. That's his nephew. That's his buddy. His, his grandkids, or not his grandkids, his, his, your nephew's kids or what? Like your great nephews? His great nephews are there. His family's there. And so he says, God, if there's 50 people in um, Sodom and Gomorrah, who are righteous, will you spare all of Sodom and Gomorrah? And God says, okay, I will. And then, then Abraham says, well, don't be mad, but let me ask you one more question. What if there's 40? Would you spare it for 40? And God says, okay, I'll spare it for 40. 
And then Abraham says, well, let me ask you one more time since it seems to be going pretty well. Will you spare it for 30? And God says, okay, I'll spare it for 30. And then Abraham says, well, how about 20? And then he says, well, let me ask one more time. And I think he's counting on his hands. Like, okay, there's Lot, his wife, he's got some kids. They got, okay, I, I'm positive there's 10. Lord, if there's 10, will you spare Sodom and Gomorrah? And God says, if there's 10 righteous in it, I'll spare it. And then the Bible says where Abraham is having this conversation, um, it's a rhetorical question that God knows how to um, deliver the righteous from the wicked. So, so he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, but he's not going to destroy the righteous with Sodom and Gomorrah. So that's, again, these are different layers all throughout the Bible that say before this seven-year period happens that the bride of Christ, the church, is going to be gone. And I'm super like, I don't want to cause division over this area with other brothers. Because if we have other brothers or sisters who have a different eschatological timeline, who cares? Whichever one of us is right, on the way up, we can switch it. If, if, if I'm right and you're a mid-tribulation rapture guy, on the way up, just change your mind and, and we'll be, again, you know, we're going to the same heaven. We love each other. We're brothers in Christ. We're not called to have perfect doctrine. We're called to love Jesus and love each other. That's first. But But I'm super, like... I'm super set in my ways on this issue just because I've been from Genesis to Revelation and I've gone through it. And this is the way I see it. It's just the way I see it. It's there. And I've told you guys, and because of this, I'm not afraid to tell you, you will not face the wrath of God or the seven-year tribulation. So you don't have to store guns and, and build bunkers. And, and please, listen, if you're storing guns and bunkers and alternative currencies and wheat in your basement and you got holes for the zombie apocalypse that you crawl into and you're teaching your seven-year-old how to roll around and shoot zombies and some of this stuff these prepping ideas are, are doing. And you're, if you're doing those things and you're doing it because of something difficult that's going to happen while we're here on planet Earth, then God bless you. By all means, continue to prepare. Because what I can't say is that you won't face difficult things in this life. Let's look at our history of God's, of God's people. One of, the, one of the giants of the faith is a woman by the name of Corrie Ten Boom who lived through the Holocaust. She lived through something very terrible. Remember the story of the fleas? You know, they had so many fleas in their, in, in their, in their room, in their camp, that it was just disgusting. And it just fleas everywhere. And it was so terrible. And they were praying that God would remove these fleas. And then the, the German soldiers came to do harm. And they wouldn't go into her room because of... And so the, the moral of that story from her perspective in her book was, thank God for the fleas. But what she went through was terrible. And so, so if, if you think you're going to go through something that man's going to throw at you and you're making preparation for that, go for it. Okay? I won't stop you. But please, don't make this mistake. Do not for one second think that you're going to do anything to prepare for what the Bible describes in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. If you've got a 90-pound hailstone that's landing on your house and your compound, how many AR-15s are you going to need to survive? How much gold are you going to need? How much bread are you going to need to survive that? When demons are going through the planet and, and, putting, and attacking people and putting sores on their body that, that are so loathsome that they want to die, but yet they can't die, they're, they're in the most miserable pain and they can't even, they, it's impossible physically for them to die. How much wheat do you need to survive that? When, when there's no oceans and there's no, there's, you know, again, just read Revelation 6 through 19. We're not prepared for that, right? So again, I'm telling you, unequivocally, you will not go through it. You know, when Jesus came to his great crescendo, one of the, one of the key sermons for everything to do with biblical eschatology in times, Jesus gives it to us in Matthew chapter 24. Okay? In Matthew chapter 24, it's a whole chapter called the Olivet Discourse. When he comes to the very end of it, and, and it's like, okay, what are we going to do? He, when you see all of these things that he just got through describing, 35 verses of it, when you see all these things begin to happen, Jesus said, move to Montana, big, dig a big hole, because Montana's got a lot of space. I guess that's why it's Montana. Get your guns and get your turrets and get your stuff and gather your food and if your Christian neighbors didn't do it, and they come over and need help, just shoot them in Jesus' name. No, it's mine! That's not what Jesus said. You know what's so, so crazy about this verse? This is what Jesus actually said. He said, when you see all these things begin to happen, 
He said, lift your eyes, your redemption draws nigh. Your Savior, your King, your Jesus, your groom, He's coming for you and He's going to save you from all of this. So lift your eyes because your redemption of Jesus is coming for you. So when you see me like, if you see me at Walmart and I'm going like this, you're like, what is wrong with the pastor? He just looks up in the air and walks in circles. I'm like, I'm just doing what Jesus told me to do. Like, I'm ready for Jesus. I'm not crazy. But that, that's kind of crazy advice, right? Yeah, I know, I'm a little crazy, but... He, he, said, he said, lift your eyes, redemption draws an eye. Do you think Jesus blew it? Do you think he like, oh, shoot, I should have told him about going... And again, I'm not saying we don't go through things and that people in this world have not. We studied the church, the, the, the churches of Thyatira, six to ten million Christians murdered in violent ways. Today, as we live, more Christians are, being, are dying than died through, through all, all of the stuff that happened in the first century. Christians all around the world. I don't got time to get into it all, but study what happened in Syria in the last ten years. My, well, blow your mind. What, what, the, the actual numbers today that are taking place. So we will, and we can go through hard things. But you will not go through the seven-year tribulation. Okay? And it says right here, verse 10, we're still on verse 10, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world. Now listen, you have to understand that, that whole world there, it's not the church. This is, this is a distinction between the bride and, and the world. You know the Bible, John said, in First John he says, do not love the world or the things of the world. And when you think of it as Christians, we use that term because we got them from our Bible and we say, I'm not of the world. Jesus taught this, right? Jesus said you were in the world, but not of the world. And there used to be a t-shirt, Christian t-shirt company. It was pretty cool. I rocked all their stuff forever. Like I was in Bible college. It was called N-O-T-W. Not of this world. Because of what Jesus said. So we understand that. The Bible says we're sojourners and scripture after scripture after scripture that we're passing through. That we're, 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 this is not our home. This is a tent. And one day we'll get rid of this tent and we'll put on glory. And so this is temporary. This is this world. So that term, the world here, is specific to not the church, but those outside of Christ. Those outside of faith in Jesus Christ. And so the world here, that this, this um, destruction and wrath will come upon the whole world. Are you guys in First Thessalonians? Okay, you're still there. Thank you. I asked you to turn there. So let's take a look. What is First Thessalonians chapter 4? Let's pick it up in about... Um, we're going to go faster. So let's pick it up in verse 16. And it says, For the Lord Himself... Look at your neighbor and say, Himself... Because some people make it angels and other things, but the Lord himself is talking about Jesus. So it's not going to be an angel blowing a trumpet, whether it's made out of gold or not. He's not going to be blowing a trumpet. It says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be. Are you guys reading your Bibles? We read our Bibles in this church. Because how do you know I'm not lying to you? Okay, it says, the, main, the, the remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So the rapture is going to happen, but it is going to happen in the middle of the tribulation, and you're going to go through three and a half years of complete hell, and everybody and everything you know is going to die and get destroyed. Comfort one another with that. Is that comforting? The only way it can be comfort is if we escape, as, as the Bible says, and as Jesus promises in Revelation 3, you guys, this church, because you're faithful, and because you've kept my commandment, because you're the church at the open door, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world. Is that not a pre-tribulation rapture scripture? Am I making this up? He says, I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come upon this whole earth. And you're not going to go through. And by the way, it's not comforting to think that you're going to go through uh, this hell. And other people say, you know, everybody has a great argument. If, if this was a pre-tribulation argument, I bet you there's plenty of pastors that come up and make a great argument for pre-tribulation rapture. I'm positive. Okay? But the, they say that, that God keeping you from the hour of trial is that, like, he's going to put an umbrella over you during the tribulation. You're going to go into it, and all this stuff's going to happen around you, and everything bad's going to be going on, and a third of the population is going to be dead, and demons and all kinds of crazy stuff, 90-pound hailstones. And, but you're going to be kept under this umbrella. That's how he's going to do it. So you're going to go in it, but he's going to cover you. That's just not fair. 
It's just not there. Because he says, pray that you would escape. And then he says, comfort one another with these words. And none of that is comforting. And the other thing is that Jesus said is he said that they will be eating and drinking and giving in marriage and receiving. If, if you're being bubbled by God because you're going to have to go through the tribulation, are, do you think you're, and, and the whole world is, do you think coronavirus was chaos? That was nothing. Nothing. That doesn't even register on the scale. That's not even a flea bite. And I'm serious. It's nothing compared to what God is going to bring and what's going to happen. So if, if, God is, if this is going on around you, how many of you think that based on what Jesus said that you're going to be planning weddings for your daughters? Does that sound like you're sending out wedding invitations? Because it says they'll be eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. So everybody will be going about life, having weddings and doing life. Does that sound like we'll be doing that kind of life in that situation? There's no way. It, 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 there's no way. It doesn't happen. So then, um, what do we want to talk about? Look at chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. This is our key verse. You guys read it to me out loud on three. One, two, three. Nice. Thank you, Gary. I heard your voice with my head down. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. Does God appoint you to wrath? Are we described in the Bible as the bride of Christ and Jesus our groom? How many of you grooms or brides let your husband beat you up for three and a half years and then marry you? No way. He's not going to do that. He's not going to let us go through it. You know, some say, oh, well, it's like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They went into the fire, but God went in the fire with them. See, there you go. But, but the whole picture is right there. That's just completely ignoring what the Scripture says. Because in the whole story, they have to bow down to this, this God that Nebuchadnezzar sets up, and they won't do it. Daniel is, is, is the key character in, in the Bible, really. This guy has the most, like, just integrity, and, and, and he's one of the only guys in the whole Bible that God has not one negative thing to record about his life. Daniel is a rock. And then later, something else happens, and Daniel continues to serve God, and they throw him in a lion's den. So there's no way you could ever believe that Daniel was there and he didn't get thrown in the fire because Daniel was bowing down to Nebuchadnezzar's God. Could it, can any of you see in the situation and knowing Daniel that he would have got out of the fire because he was bowing down? That's not Daniel. Daniel is mysteriously missing in the whole story. Why? Because Daniel represents the church. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know who is going to go into the fire? The nation of Israel. Because they rejected Jesus. And, and God's going to refine them in that fire. And he's going to bring them back to himself because he's crazy madly in love with the Jews. He, so much so he chose to make his own son a Jew. So he, he's going to get them back, but they're going to go through the fire. Noah and his family, they went through the flood. They represent the nation of Israel who's going to go into the great tribulation. The Bible says that when the Antichrist... Um, causes the abomination of desolation and he goes into the rebuilt Jewish temple and he, and he makes himself to be God, the Jews are going to realize that they're duped and they're going to flee. And God's going to get a hold of their heart. And he's going to raise up way before that 144,000 Jewish evangelists. He's going to bring back two people from heaven. He's going to place them at the temple and they're going to be prophesying and sharing the gospel. The Bible says angels are going to fly through the, um, through the heavens proclaiming the everlasting gospel, reaching out his love to his people. But they're going to go in. So Noah and his family, they went through the flood. But you know who's contemporary with Noah and his family in the flood? A guy by the name of Enoch. And what does the Bible say about Enoch? One of the best scriptures, it says he walked with God and he was not because God took him. He's one of the only, only two people in the Bible that never faced physical death, Enoch and Elijah. But he's a picture of the rapture. He's a picture of the church. He goes up, the, 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 the Noah and his family, the Jews go through. So that is, again, the consistent biblical model that's all the way through from one side to the other. You guys think I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture theory yet? Hey, have you guys been uh, praying for uh, the Canadian pastors? Google it when you get home today. They're going through hell. They're being arrested. They're being pulled over in their cars. They're, 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 they're really, it's bad right now. And it's funny because it's, it's North America and yet really a strong governmental persecution against pastors and churches taking place right now today in Canada. So be praying for those pastors. Be praying for 
for God's work and for them to stand strong through that persecution. And again, you know, sometimes as you watch things around the world, you think, okay, it's there now, but how long before it comes here? And we've been saying that for a while. How long before they make what we do illegal? And it doesn't look like they're going to let the coronavirus go away. They're going to continue to bring it back, and they're going to continue to try to use it to control us because they found out it's effective. They've been trying for years. They thought they were going to control the populations with climate control. That was what climate control was about from the gate. It was, it was another attempt on their part to try to control the masses, and it didn't work. It failed miserably in, in their attempt. But then when coronavirus came, they finally, for the first time in human history, have figured out a way that's effective in controlling the masses. And it's, it's, it's not going to go away. So, uh, again, you know, you know we, we can and will face some hard stuff. I'm just, I'm just want to be super clear. Because I, I tell people all the time, like, I, I, I don't invest too much in, in, in all that, like, preparation stuff. And I'm not your economist, so please, make your good, wise financial decisions. But I try to make my investments into the kingdom of God because they pay eternal dividends. I invest in missionaries and not in alternative currencies. I invest in the Word of God, in the church. I invest in things and not in cryptocurrencies and not in wheat and these things. And that's just a personal decision, so I'm not putting that on anybody. But make a decision to invest in the kingdom of God, and I, I promise you, you know, it'll pay, it will pay eternal dividends. And God, God will bless it. And it is something that will last forever because we're not going to be here. We don't need preparations. We need preparation for anything the world's going to throw at us. But your husband, your groom, He's crazy in love with you. He really is. He's just crazy in love with you. You know what's so cool about God? And this one just rocks my world every time. The Bible says about us that God not only loves us crazy, but he likes us. That's, that's much harder. Because I can believe that you love me, but you just don't like who I am. And even with my own kids, you know, I love my kids. There's no doubt about the love, but there's times I don't like them that much, you know, like they're they're bogging me and they're being whatever and I don't like them that much. But to be able to, and I understand just as a, as a father, the, the ability to really look at my boys and my kids and, and say, like, I like you. I really like you. That's so powerful. That's so moving. And I just like who you are. I like what you've become. I like what you're doing. But God says that about you. And, and we, we can believe in God's love, but maybe not as, as you know, it's like if God was here and he wanted to, Go hang out with somebody. He would want to hang out with you. He likes who you are. He'd love to just hang out, play games or talk or get coffee or do something with you and spend time with you. He loves you that much and he likes you. Amen? Okay, I just got a couple more verses, you guys, and we'll let you go for today. But I I do got to finish the Church of Philadelphia because um, I think they'll fire me if I spend a third week in this one church. It says, um, I think we covered 10 pretty good. No, we didn't. We got to do one more thing. We really do. I just got to do it. I got to add to this, okay? Um, turn with me real quick. Luke chapter 21. Okay, I told you guys, and I want you guys to know what Matthew um, 24 is all, all about, the Olivet Discourse. That's the end time stuff. This is the parallel to that in Luke's gospel. It's in Luke 21. And just real quickly, I want to bring your attention to verse 20, 36. And it says, Watch, therefore, and pray always that you be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. The same verbiage that's in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. Um, these things that are going to come upon the world. And Jesus here, these are words in red. He says, pray that you would escape them. You know, some of my friends who are, um, believe that the church will go into a portion of the tribulation period, they say, you pre-tribulation guys, you're just escapists. You just are afraid, or you're not really a strong Christian because you're afraid to have to face hard things. And that's why you just want to escape the, the stuff that's going to come. You're an escapist. You need to go to Starbucks, and you're a Starbucks Christian. You like your lattes or whatever, and you don't want any trouble. You just want everything nice. I'm like, yeah, label me an escapist. I, I don't have any bones about that. Like, I'm cool. I'm down with that. I am an escapist. If Jesus says to you, hey, pray that you would escape, Where's the wisdom to, to, to pray you would escape or to believe you're going to go through? And Jesus said, pray that you would escape. And, and he's going to. And then in Revelation, what's cool is here he says, pray that you would escape. And then in Revelation, he says, don't even trip. I'm going to keep you out. You're not going to go in. I got you. You escaped. 
All right, that's that. I just had to show you that. So mark that so you guys know that. Um, Chapter 3, verse number 11, he says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. So those crowns that are listed there in verse 11, there's, there's multiple crowns, seven different crowns that you can earn as a Christ follower in the flesh that will go with you to heaven. But don't get too excited because you'll have all these seven beautiful crowns. And, you know, we, talk, we see a king who wears one crown, and they're kind of cool, you know, but how would seven crowns at the same time be on your head? That'd be pretty cool, you know. Um, but you're going to cast them at Jesus' feet anyways, but it's still kind of cool to earn them. And it says that he will, no one will take your crown. And he who overcomes, verse 12, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. If you guys don't like tattoos, you better change your opinion because here Jesus is going to write on you his name and the name of his city. Now, I, I want to be careful. I'm not trying to justify tattoos. That's a personal decision between you and Christ. Don't get a tattoo unless you, God tells you it's okay and you have personal peace about it. But if you judge people because they have tattoos, be careful with that too because the Bible in, in multiple occasions, the Bible doesn't pro- prohibit it um, nowhere. You know, you can argue with me out of some Old Testament verse stuff, but in that same chapter, it says that your wife, when she's on her period, has to sleep outside or apart from you. So if you're going to follow the no tattoo rule, then make sure your wife sleeps outside the house once for a week, once, once, once a month. Okay, and, and it also says in that same chapter that you can't cut the, the sideburns of your hair. And that's why you see the Jews and they have those ringlets down here because the Bible pro- prohibits them from cutting them. So if you cut your hair as well, then you're also in um, disobedience if you take that scripture to heart to mean that God is pr- prohibiting um, uh, the use of tattoos. And here it does say he's going to write on you. It doesn't necessarily mean, I don't know, I don't know if you have, you have a glorified body and all that. But it's, it says he's going to write on you a new name. And then in Revelation 19, when Jesus comes, it says written upon his thigh will be the, it'll say King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So I don't know, maybe they are a worldly picture of something. And, and Satan perverts what God does, but maybe there's something that God has done in the word here that Satan has perverted. And that could be the case. And again, that's why it can be sinful, um, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. So then it says, um, The new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from God, and I will write on him my new name. Hey, worship team, come on up. Let's go ahead and sing a song. And it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's stand together. We would like to uh, extend an invitation to you. To escape the things that are going to come upon this world. There's going to be a lot of good people and a lot of bad people in heaven. Because the the qualification that the Bible lays out to get to heaven is not good or bad. The thief on the cross was a very bad person. I had a conversation one time with a gentleman who was very religious but not spirit-filled. And I asked him about this thief on the cross. And he said, well, he must have really been a good person. He, he must have, God must have just really seen some good qualities about him. Like, yeah, he killed people and he was an insurrectionist. He was a rebel rouser and all of society would have agreed he would have deserved. If he lived in our day, we would all say, okay, that's Charlie Manson. The death penalty is acceptable here. But he said, no, he saw something. And I said, no, that guy was rotten to the core. He was a bad person through and through to the point of his death. And, and, and he repented. And he asked Jesus for forgiveness of his sins. And Jesus looked at him and he, on the cross as he's dying in his love as only Jesus can. And he continued to reach out. And he said, today you will be with me in paradise. And, and, and the invitation to get to heaven or not get to heaven has nothing to do with being good or bad. It's just one simple truth. You were born into a sin nature. And, and, and you know you have sin by the time you were Six days old, you already committed your first sin and were guilty for the rest of your life of sin. You know, anybody in here never told a little lie? If you ever told a little lie, what does that make you? Any of you guys ever have a, have a, a, a dirty look at something you're not supposed to look at? Have you ever stolen anything? What does that make you? So we have sin. We just have sin that 
and 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 it doesn't mean that we stop sin or we become perfect. It just means that because of that sin, we can't stand before a holy God in heaven and be accepted without judgment. But God has paved the way. He sent his son to die on the cross, rise again the third day, to, to die in your place so that when God sees you on judgment day, he doesn't see your sin. He sees his son whom he loves. And, and, and based on faith in Jesus and the grace of God that you receive that forgiveness that he offers. And now when you stand before God on judgment day, it has nothing to do with whether you were good or bad. It has to do with whether you were forgiven. And God offers that forgiveness to every one of us at, at no cost to us. No cost to be forgiven and to receive the kingdom. There's a great cost to becoming a disciple of Christ. And it, it costs you your whole life and everything that you are. But the cost of forgiveness is, is a free gift of God to you. It costs Jesus everything. Jesus died the most brutal death that any human has ever faced to save you and love you. And he offers that gift. And we offer it to you today. If you need to get your heart and life with the Lord, if you need to get your heart and life right with the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to give you that opportunity today. And don't do it because of anything other than you feel right now the Holy Spirit is telling you this is for you and you want to do this with the Holy Spirit. Because if you just do it because I'm asking you to, it, it means nothing. But if you're talking to God right now and you're feeling God's Holy Spirit telling you yes, then I want to lead you in a prayer. And I want you to say this to God. And if you say this to God and you mean this in your heart, and you have to surrender everything. Listen, I tried. I tried when I was 13 years old and I had this little experience and I went to church and I said, God, I want to give you my life, but I kind of like some of the stuff I do. I want to give you 90%. I want to just keep this little 10 over here. And God, God didn't accept it. I'm sorry. He just doesn't receive it. He says, I need everything. I need you to fully surrender your heart and life to me. And later, then after just a bunch of junk in my life, at 20 years old, I did the same, said the same prayer. And I, but this time it came from my heart and I said, God, I want to give you everything. I need you. I'm broken. Help me. Here I am. And then I got saved. And there was magic and there was power. And angels in heaven began to rejoice, the Bible says. So I want to give you that opportunity today. I want to ask you to close your eyes and bow your head. You know, we, we, we do this privately in this moment. But I'll tell you, Jesus never called anybody privately. And Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. But you have to be bold for Jesus and none ashamed of the gospel. But I want to give you this opportunity just to, just to say this prayer and get your life right with Jesus. And I'm going to encourage you to be bold after this in your, in your step of becoming a Christ follower. And tell us. Tell one of the pastors. Let somebody know. Let somebody encourage you and pray for you if you made this decision today. Dear Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Please come into my heart. Be my Lord and Savior. I give you all of my life. Please fill me with your Holy Spirit. I surrender. I believe that you died on a cross and rose again the third day. And I believe that in my heart. And I confess that with my mouth unto salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. We're going to sing this last song.